everybody there? I am here. Good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you, Richard? I'm all right. Thank you for uh, doing this. I know it's nine o'clock over there uh, and it's kind of early sometimes on a Sunday. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. You know, I am, I am so used to getting up early and I'm just arranging things so that you don't get the glare of the window behind me. Yeah, it looks good. I, you know, when I was teaching remotely from home, this room was, oh, to say it was a mess is to put it politely. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, I didn't want to use a cheesy background. So this just made it easier. My students didn't have to look at my mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I figure, you know, the only way for me to portray myself somewhat decently is to come under the stairs in this makeshift studio and feel like, <laughs> you know, as long as I have a curtain, I can put away a lot of the, uh, a lot of, uh, I jokingly say trash, but sometimes I wonder. So, uh, you've been a teacher for a while now, right? 30. I've been at one, the score I am now for 32 years. Oh goodness. If I may ask, so we can kind of begin, begin there. Sure. How has the, the teaching life been for you? Uh, it's, it's quite a journey, I imagine. It is. <laughs> Given so many years, that's a big question. Um, so I guess, I'll, I guess I'll start here. I am, I'm actually a creative writing program dropout. Oh, okay. I applied. I was accepted to Syracuse University's Master's in Creative Writing. This is before they had an MFA. So this mm. was in the fall of, like, fall of 1984, the 1984-85 mm. academic year. Mm. And um, for a lot of different reasons, I dropped out mostly because I had a conversation with um, Philip Booth, who was my teacher at the time. And, and he kind of looked at me and he said, you know, you can write, but I don't know that you yet have the, the central set of concerns that you're going to need if you're going to write a thesis. Because right, if you write a thesis, they want to build the book around the concerns. And he said the pro- and he just kind of looked at me and said, you know, you're really young. I was 22 years old. Wow. And he and he and he suggested to me that perhaps what I needed to do was live a little bit more mm-hmm. rather, you know, and, and just go live and have the experience. And he said, you know, you don't need a college degree to be a poet. You don't need a, a master's in creative writing to be a poet. And so I went off. That was for me a really freeing thing. Mm-hmm. And I went and got my master's instead in teaching English as a second language. And from there this is how I became the teacher that I became. It's why I gave you the backstory. Yeah, I love that. I taught English in South Korea for a year in, in 1988, 89, and then got hired where I am now at Nassau Community College on Long Island. And I've been there for 30, yeah, 32 years. Wow. And it's, I, I've been very, I've been very fortunate teaching is, I mean, one of the nice things about teaching at a community college is that you don't have to, you don't have the same kinds of specialization that you have in four year schools. Mm. So like I wasn't hired as the romanticist or the Shakespearean or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. We all teach composition and then we teach what electives we are qualified to teach. And over the years, I've just done an awful lot. It's been a really fulfilling <laughs> career. No, that's wonderful to hear. And it kind of helps me splinter things into a whole bunch of different directions because I I love this idea that you had somebody along the way during your education who told you, you know what, it, just live. It's okay. Rather than just continue yeah. to seek out uh, certification, uh, academic validation in some way. 
did you ever feel like that's something that you had to do and that's why you went to your master's or was that which master your first the creative one. writing yeah, when... so there's a whole i mean i can tell i'll tell you the whole I, there's a whole backstory oh i love so, it so um there's a whole backstory um some of which has absolutely nothing to do with writing so i was as i had a girlfriend at the time and we were in a long distance relationship and she was at syracuse university and i was an undergraduate at stony brook university and i wanted to be a poet i mean i, I had i had i was i wanted to be a writer it's what i wanted to study but um when i was applying to school i guess because i was partially because i was just so young right and the field of creative writing especially at the undergraduate level in the 1980s is not what it is now how so well i mean now it's an actual academic field mm. right i mean it's an academic course of study there's a an mfa which is a professional qualification to teach creative writing there are bachelors of fine arts degrees at the college where i teach we have an associates in creative writing there are community colleges that have associates of fine art in creative writing, right? So it's, it's become a field. So in the 1980s, I don't think there was the same kind of language, like there wasn't a discourse around that field that you could use to write. So when I applied to schools, I applied, someone told me this later that it wasn't clear from my application whether I, what I really wanted to do was be a scholar or a poet. Mm. I knew I wanted to be a poet, but I didn't have the language quite to write to describe that. So um, I was applying to a lot of different places and my girlfriend was in Syracuse. And so I applied to Syracuse. Syracuse was where I got accepted. When I went to Syracuse, um, she left Syracuse. Oh, no. <laughs> and, right. So, I mean, that's kind of how I went. I, I you know, I chose Syracuse because she was there and in at Syracuse, um, I had a, a teacher and I'm not going to, I'm not going to say names because i don't think it's it it's really worth saying the names but um i had a teacher the the person who ran our first year workshop actually threatened to kick me out of the program oh because um this person told me that i was writing bubblegum poetry oh no right and they told me that that they had originally argued there was a question about whether or not I should be accepted into the program because it wasn't, they weren't clear whether I wanted to be a scholar or a poet. And this person had argued for accepting me because I was writing about feelings in a way that they thought was interesting. Mm. Um, but then in, once I was in the class and I was writing basically the same kinds of things I was writing when I applied, this person said it was, you know, bubblegum poetry. And now I think to myself, I was 22 years old. Yeah. Why would, I mean, you know, I mean, how, how emotionally mature and developed was I? Right. Right. I mean, it, you know, but, but this person had a kind of tough love approach to the tough love pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And I did some, you know, I mean, they sent me to read Robert Creeley and some other things to help me understand syntax in a way to sort of make my my bubblegum, I don't know, a little bit less bubblegum. <laughs> I, I don't know. But the next semester was when Philip Booth told me that I didn't need, you know, you don't need a degree to be to be a poet. Yeah. And it was remarkably freeing for me. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you this. How did you feel about poetry before you had that epiphany, that realization of, I, I don't need to, to be an academic? Did you feel like there was there was a need for structure before you went into this world of academia? 
No, I, I don't think I felt like I needed to be, a, I don't think I felt like I needed a degree to be a poet. Um, I saw it as an opportunity to study, right? Mm. You know, I saw it as an opportunity to study and I saw it as, at the time, I think, I saw it as a precursor eventually to a PhD, mm. which is because I thought I, I, I kind of wanted to teach. I wanted to, and back then, um, and I mean, even now, you know, I mean, to teach at a four-year school, you needed a PhD and, yeah. and all of that. So I don't know that I felt like I needed structure to be a poet um, as much as I felt, felt the structure would help me have the career that I wanted to have. So it was part of the life plan. You always felt like teaching was going to be a part of your life either way. So you said, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this further. Um, yeah. 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 And I, and I wanted to, I, I wanted to write. So, you know. It yeah. was the logical. It was the logical thing to do. Sure. My first choice when I, my first choice when I was in college was to be in music. Oh, and I definitely wanted to dig into that. So, what is it about music that does it for you? Or when did you discover music? If we can go back that far. When I was a boy, um, my my grandmother was a singer and a piano player. Mm. She she actually sang professionally in the 1930s. Jimmy Durante was her accompanist at one point. Oh, okay. So I, I mean, I don't know how many people will remember who Jimmy Durante was, but he was a huge performer. Big he deal. was very famous. Oh, right? wow. It was a very big deal. Mm. Um, and um, she had a Steinway upright piano in her dining room. Mm. And she started to teach me how to play. Oh, that's great. That's it. She started to teach me how to play. And then... I mean, I, I just, I've always liked music. I don't know that there's any, any like logical or, yeah, or coherent like... explanation. <laughs> I, I marched, I marched in drum corps when I was a teenager. Mm. I played bass, baritone, bugle, and, and, and we marched in parades all around New York city. Um, and I, I was like, I was first horn player for a while. I was, I mean, I played well. Mm. And, and then when I was in high school, I took piano lessons and I just, I play piano. And I play keyboard and I've written, I, when I was, when I was in the, when I, in the, in the eighties, I guess in the eighties and the nineties, I had a synthesizer and I was composing music and, but I did not study it in college because I didn't have the confidence. Did family support you through, uh, your creative pursuits as a, as a profession? Um, no, hmm. I, I don't want to say they didn't, let me put it differently. It's not that they didn't support me. It's just, I think they were indifferent. There was, there was, there was tremendous indifference to it. No, but I don't think, I don't think anybody asked me about writing until I was well out of graduate school. Oh goodness. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. People just, you know, neither my, not my mother, my grandmother, nobody really outside in my family was all that interested in what I was doing. I would say I was writing and they would go, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> You know. Is it a fairly uh, working class family? Would you say uh, in those days, or yeah, but I don't think I don't think that's quite the reason. I mean, I kind of I I, I kind of understand your quote. You I know, mean, my grandparents were Depression era, right? Ah, okay, yeah, and they were Depression era people. Um, I think my grandmother my grandmother discouraged me from pursuing music because um, I did not start young enough. You know, she was wow. for her being a concert pianist was the only reason to be a pianist, right? I see. So there's an older expectation or a sense of tradition about how you need to go about that specific path, maybe. 
Well, but that's also, it's also just true. I mean, if you're going to be a concert pianist, you have to start at a very young age, right? I mean, it's, it's also just true. Yeah. You know, I think for my grandmother, I think for my grandmother, a lot of it had to do with her own resentment at having to give up her creative pursuits. Mm. You know, I mean, when she yeah. got married to my grandfather, she became a housewife and mm. she didn't do a lot of the things, yeah. right, that she wanted to do. And I suppose my, my, you know, we were my mother, meaning my mother, my stepfather, we were, we, we I suppose you would call us working class. Mm. Um, you know, he was a truck driver. My mother was a housewife. But again, I don't think it had, I think, I, I, I don't want to say, it, I don't want to say it had nothing to do with class, but I just mm -hmm. think it had a lot more to do yeah. Um, yeah. with the idea that they didn't understand it. Right. Or right. it was, or it was, or it was something it was something that other people did that you, you know, you consumed culture. You didn't necessarily produce culture because it's not that, it's not that culture wasn't valued. Yeah. And it's always interesting to hear that because I feel like that's the one question that gets me stuck in my worldview where I always feel like the creative pursuits tend to be, and, and this is sort of my default setting based on kind of how I grew up and everything. It always makes me feel like I have to remind myself that the arts as a profession are something that somebody can pursue no matter where they come from economically or what their background is. I, I always feel like that's kind of like the right. default question that I go to. So I appreciate that because it, it kind of brings me back around and gives me some clarity. But you mentioned in, in your bio that there, there's an aspect of feminism that has been either inculcated in, into who you are as a person or that you have found along the way. Can you tell me a little bit about that, the, maybe how the women in your life had have made this impact or if it's, you know, how did you well, come about? Sure. So, I mean, the women in my life, my grandmother was a, was a powerhouse. My great grandmother was a suffragist or a suffragette. I don't remember oh, now mm. which one, but she marched. I mean, she marched for women's right to vote. Um, and I mean, she was, and I know, I know, I know her, from stories, but my grandmother was a remarkably independent woman. Mm. Um, my mother was a single mother of four in the 1970s. Oh, wow. You know, so uh, um, I saw a lot, right? But the thing that, the, I mean, the thing that turned me into a feminist or, or pro-feminist, depending upon their, you know, depending on which school you believe I should adhere to in terms of the language, right? I, had, I don't want to say that it had nothing to do with them because I think I was primed by their example. Mm -hmm. But no, the thing, the thing that, that really made me a feminist was this. So I was twice um, as a boy sexually violated. Um, once when I was around 12 years old and then another time on, on a sort of ongoing basis from the time I was 15 till I was about 17. Mm -hmm. And I was reading Adrian Rich's book on lies, secrets, and silence when I was 19 years old. And I don't remember why I was reading the book. I, I don't remember how it came, but I was reading the book. And there was a specific passage that had to do with women's sexual objectification. And th this is the God's, I, God's honest truth. I just, in fact, published an essay that, in which I tell this story. Um, I actually, I heard a voice that said, you know, what about me? What about what happened to me? And what feminism gave me was 
a language to talk about and to understand what those men, because it was men who, who assaulted me, um, what those men did to me as sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Right? Because, yeah. I mean, in the 1980s, now we kind of talk, I don't want to say we speak easily about it, but now it is understood that boys and men can be sexually violated. That, right. right. And there is a kind of discourse around that. Right. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, that's when date rape was first beginning to be a thing. Right. The 1980s was when sexual harassment was first beginning to come onto the books as something that was wrong. Nobody was talking about it happening to boys at all. At all. Yeah. At least in the mainstream. I mean, at least in, in, in you know, right. I mean, and the women's movement was not talking about it either. And I'm not saying they should have been, but, but yeah. nobody who was talking about sexual violence was talking about sexual violence against boys and men. Um, and that, the fact that I got that language from feminism was, was eye-opening for me. I mean, it was just, it just was absolutely eye-opening for me. And it gave me, it gave me a real gift because I don't, I think if I had not had the feminist conviction that the only person who is responsible and accountable for an act of sexual violence is the person who commits it, mm -hmm. I would have been even more wrapped up in shame and self-blame and guilt and, you know, yeah. and all of the things that come with having been assaulted. I would have been even more wrapped up in that than I was. And, and I mean, I never, I never once doubted that I was not responsible for what had happened mm -hmm. or that I doubted that I was responsible. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, had, I, I never once, I, ne I never once thought that I might have been responsible for what happened. I, I want to thank you for writing that uh, piece because I, I was checking it out last night and it's just such a harrowing account of a series of events that have formed so much of you and your in your perspective but i think the really interesting thing about it is that it, two things i guess structurally it just kind of read like a train of thought in that one thing like a chain kind of leads you to the other event and it, it kind of feels like that's kind of it it always is right where there are things that you might think are unrelated but then they always come back to to that moment of of deep hurt and of those those really difficult memories and so you know, it's it's a very interesting read in that superficial kind of regard. But looking at the the content of it, it feels like there is a, a just a touch of resolution, just a touch of light at the end of the tunnel where you do have that conversation with with your partner at the time. And uh, she is helping. Right. She is she is there to just stop. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was I mean, you're you're, you're that's true. I, I would just say that, it, I you know that all happened at this point a very long time ago. Mm. Right. I mean, I was yeah. in my twenties Yeah. when that, when that, when that happened. So, um, which I, and that's the other thing I'll say about having gotten this language from, fem from feminism, my understanding is so I'm 60. Most men, my age of my generation who have this experience, my understanding is don't disclose for decades. Yeah. I mean, right, they will, they, you know, 20, 30, sometimes even 40 years. I mean, there are people who are, you know, who have not told a soul until they become my age. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that feminism did for me and having that language did for me is it gave me a way 
to think about it, right? To, mm-hmm. to, to talk about it so that at, I don't know, I was 21 years old. Yeah. You know, which was just about four years after the last event, you know, that the final event happened, right? Mm-hmm. To, which is, from what I understand, a very, very uncommon experience. Yeah. And I was going to mention, I mean, uh, it seems that you have, you, I don't want to say you've been accustomed to being open about it, but, but you, you seem to be, yeah, it it seems to be um, a less daunting endeavor to vocalize this than it used to be. Is that, is that incorrect? And I don't want to, to misspeak here. No, 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 no. I think you're, you're, it's, you're right. You're right. And I think, you know, come back to feminism again right i mean you know the thing what you know one of the things that women the women's movement and and people who were writing at the time was like you know this is nothing you you, this is nothing to be ashamed of you have to speak about it the personal is political all of those kinds of things right and that was you know i I mean i immersed myself in in the radical feminism and and and, i mean now you sort of say the white radical feminism of the time at the Mm -hmm. time i wasn't thinking i wasn't thinking about it in those terms yeah at the time right um and so i mean that that idea that you know you do not hide from this and you don't you know you need to confront the world with this and confront patriarchy with this was sort of the air i breathed in some way Mm -hmm. and so i was strategically open about it from a very from 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 you know once i told my girlfriend and and you know that was a huge huge thing Mm. um over the next years i became you know sort of very strategically open about it i see you know and and i and i mean the writing it it became a central concern of my writing pretty early on i see so do you feel that that experience can be so devastating and inhabit so much of your mind did you feel that at some point you were able to write about other things without feeling like you you had to go to that well of hurt that experience i don't think i ever felt that that was the only thing i had to write about okay i don't think i ever felt like that that's i think what happened i think what happened but what happened as i as i matured as i got older as i understood myself better and understood what i wanted my writing to do in the world better mm-hmm. right i think what happened was that i came to understand how the concerns that come out of having been sexually violated that i think pretty much everything that i write is rooted in those concerns mm-hmm. you know yeah um my i partially because I found, I mean, I call it the seeds of my healing, right? And I, I mean, and it's really true because I found those in feminism and feminism is a politics, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's a, right. Feminism is a politics. Understanding, coming to terms with my own experience has been about understanding how that impacted me personally, politically, professionally. Yeah. Right. So it, it just goes um, all over. Yeah. Yeah, and so you know, and so the, what I and, and you know, my 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 very first poetry teacher was June Jordan, back in the nineteen eighties when she was at Stony Brook University, and and she said it then, and I know she has. I mean, she's written it um, 
you know, a poem is a vehicle for telling the truth, for speaking truth. Mm. And I, I don't, for me, I don't want to say that's the only reason to write, but I don't see any other reason to publish a poem. Yeah. I mean, why, you know, wh wh why does this poem or this book, does it really need to be out in the world? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and for me, for me, the measure is, is it telling, am I telling the truth or am I speaking a truth or exploring the truth? You know? Um, and I think on that level, the truths that matter to me are the truths that emerge from this experience, whether I'm writing about the abuse specifically, or I'm writing about, I don't know, my union, the, I mean, the, some of the newer poems I'm writing kind of talk about the union work that I did for 10 years, mm. or I'm writing a love poem, or I'm writing, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so interestingly, oh, and I, I apologize for interjecting. No, but please, go ahead. Do, do go you ahead. feel that it has sharpened your, your, your set of values to such a degree that you have a clear determined sense of right and wrong from the get-go and you say this cannot be allowed and so that kind of as you said it just kind of goes through you when know, you say this cannot be allowed you're talking about wrong i'm talking writing, about or you're talking about right and wrong in the yeah world. yeah because i think a, a lot of us are fairly uh in in the world might be indifferent about about many things but then having something of of that extreme in, in that extreme situation happened to you, it's, it's almost like you have to pursue a sense of, of justice and morality in such a way that, that you're, you're, I don't know, may, maybe I'm just digging too much into it, but it, but it just feels like you have this conviction. Um, no, I think extreme conviction. No, I, I would agree with that. I think a lot, a lot of my, I mean, okay, personally on my, you know, my, my personal politics and you know how I live my life in the world, yes, right, and we mm -hmm. all do that imperfectly, yeah. yeah, right. We all, but in my writing, I think what you're saying is true. It, mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of what I write is very much concerned with those kinds of ethical, you know, those kinds of ethical questions. Have those kinds of ethical questions at the heart of it. Yeah, and that's uh, and not not to <laughs> bring it full circle about about myself here but it just feels like having these kinds of discussions is so rare that even i as i as i'm trying to have this conversation with you i keep trying to find the right language for handling these things delicately and and letting these experiences be seen and heard so that people know and i i just think it's a, it's a curious thing because that's almost never happened to me before where I feel like, um, normally those conversations, they go really well, but I definitely want to be delicate to the point where it, it just feels like I'm still like this, but. Uh, so, I, so, I, so let me ask you a question. Were I a woman, would you be having the same, would you be tongue tied in the same way? Do you think? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's an interesting question. I mean, maybe. That's a fair uh, answer. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. But, uh, I just think personally that this is something that we need to be more open about that we need to talk about so i'm just really grateful that you you have handled this in the way that you right. have and that you're giving us a model for how to speak about it um well, and, i appreciate that yeah because it's incredibly important and you know we've seen a lot of that and un unfortunately we just need to to provide this language or continue to right. provide a language for it so thank you
the, no, thank you. The reason I asked you my question, mm-hmm. the reason I asked you that question is it struck me that you used the word, you know, you wanted to be delicate in the way that you talk about it. Oh, right? I see. And I, yeah. and I, and I, and I, and I appreciate the concern. Please don't misunderstand. I, I yeah, appreciate yeah. where that, I For really sure. do appreciate where that word comes from. Yeah. But the re- part of the reason I asked is that we know how to talk about sexual violence against women. Mm, okay yeah right we yeah. know we know how to do that and one of the reasons we know how to do that and there's a lot that we don't have to say explicitly right because because culturally and i don't I mean culturally heteronormatively patriarchally women are supposed to be vulnerable to that sort of thing i mean not that they right i mean supposed yeah, to be yeah. right 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 and so we can talk about sexual violence against women and already everything is sort of, sort of fits into yeah. a slot, mm-hmm. right? Where we, we know, we know what it means. You know, you can, whether, whether you are standing in opposition to it, apologizing for it, you know, whatever position, right? Yeah. The framework exists. We don't have that kind of framework for talking about male vulnerability and specifically mm-hmm. male physical and sexual vulner- sexual mm-hmm. vulnerability, right? Yeah. So, right. We don't have that kind of framework. And so I sometimes think that the desire to be delicate and I under what you meant by delicate was respectful of my feelings and my experience. And I, right. Sure, so I appreciate sure. that. So yeah. I, I, right. But I sometimes think that the, 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 when people feel the need to be delicate, it actually ends up, obscuring more than it revealed Mm. okay right because the because you know um it's one of the so one of the reasons why i make a point and i mean in in the essay that i wrote right the first time i told someone um i try and make a point of describing what happened to me by saying what the men who violated me did to me Mm. rather than simply say i was sexually abused they violate, I mean, you know, to, to name spe- the specific thing that they did, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that, that's kind of why I asked the question. That's why, yeah. why I asked, you know, if you, would, yeah. if you would have the same, I don't know, feelings of confusion or whatever, you know, whatever's kind of in your head yeah. and about that's, figuring out a way to talk about this mm-hmm. if I were a woman. Yeah. And that's a powerful question because I think it does reflect, again, I try to internalize it in a way that will educate me on it a bit too because i come from a family of uh you know a mexican family where the the cultural norms are very much you have to have a, a macho perspective on things right. the man is the man the woman's the woman and the man is the 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 one who handles these these kinds of things you know um handles everything right. and it's just interesting because i i like that uh, that the worldview is getting challenged in in a, mm-hmm. in a in a way that like oh shit I hadn't thought about that before I hadn't really internalized that before and so that's a, a really powerful thing and so if it if it does something to to me I mean I I can't imagine what the work is doing to other people as well to bring that kind of um, self um, self assessment in in a way <laughs> yeah I I mean it, it, that's a, that's it's interesting I don't know yeah yeah I don't know I've got I I get very, very few responses. I hear from very few people about the work. Mm. Once it's out there, 
and I, which doesn't, you know, and I look, it's out there. People read it. They don't read it. I, you know, I have no control over that. Yeah. But I, I don't get the kinds of responses that you're talking about very, very often, very often. I mean, one guy, I met one poet on Twitter who told me that the, the, my first book, The Silence of Men, was just crucially important. And he's, he's also a survivor of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, crucially important to him when it came out, which was in 2006, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, he, and, and, and he actually told me that, you know, he, he lent it out so many times that he finally needed to get his own, a new copy for himself. <laughs> but that's the only time I've ever heard that. Mm. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right? When I give reading, and I, and I try to make a point of reading the poems from my books that, are, that, that deal with this experience. I try to make a point of reading at least one at every mm-hmm. reading, almost every reading that I do. Yeah. Um, inevitably, if it's, a, if, well, now I have to say, if it's a face-to-face reading, if it's a yeah. virtual <laughs> reading, it's a little different, right? Yeah. But when the readings were all in person, inevitably, you know, at least one man would come up and say, thank you. Mm. Right. One guy, one guy even followed me into the bathroom to say thank you because he wanted, he didn't want anybody else to hear him mm. say yeah. that this had happened, that this had been done to him. Right. Yeah. Um, but those are, and, and those are, I, I value those responses. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are really important, valuable responses. But I actually have not gotten the kind of critical mm. responses. Yeah. Yeah, that you're hinting at, and I, I say that I, I hope that doesn't sound like sour grapes. Because no, I, no, I, I mean I don't mean it like that. But but see, this is what I love about our conversation is that is that there are some things that I I'm an optimist about that I I see something that is that you have a possibility of self assessment, and then I have to step back and realize you know not everyone is like that. Perhaps that's, people that's are true. too afraid to go to that threshold and say. Can I can I get some answers about myself from mm-hmm. this work? And mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of the biggest the biggest thing. But for for the people who have perhaps experienced, you know, this sort of traumatic or extreme event, um, it is something that the work just definitely needs to exist for. And and it needs to be a guiding light for a lot that. of folks. So it it is incredibly important whether you see those responses or not, just because it needs to exist. And the the way that you courageously confront this and and give us that language at least begin that kind of education um mm. is very powerful i think yeah, um so I appreciate it, it is definitely appreciated yeah um but you you know just not to digress completely from from this but um Please. the the work that you've done as a translator i'm very interested in can you tell me how you got into that in particular uh the the works that you've <laughs> that you've uh put out sure. in, in the collaborations that came from that? Sure. So I, I have published three, I've published three books of translations of classical Persian poetry. Mm. And one, I was the co-translator on one book of classical Persian poetry. And the way I, I got into it completely by accident. Um, so a friend of ours, my, a friend of, a friend of ours, um, is a, was a guy named Yiraj Anvar who is um, he's very involved in the Persian, the Iranian cultural community mm-hmm. in the states. And he, I mean, he was 
very involved in the cultural scene, the theater scene in Iran before the revolution. And we became friends. And he, he told me that there was an organization called the International Society for Iranian Culture mm-hmm. that um, wanted to do, originally he told me they wanted to do a website where they would have kind of um, summaries and discussions in English of masterpieces of classical Persian poetry. Mm-hmm. Would I be interested in doing that? And I was act- I was really excited by that. My wife, my wife is from Iran, mm. and so it was an opportunity for me to get to know the culture, to understand something, oh, okay. you know, and you know, and and also and also to do some real serious cultural work, right? Because mm-hmm. this was at the height of the axis of evil rhetoric after September 11th. Oh goodness! And, and part right part of the reason this organization wanted to do this work was to open up a window onto Iranian culture and what happened. So then I got to talk to the next, I got passed on to the next guy in the chain, right? And he told me that what they actually, that that what they actually wanted was um, retellings of the story in English. And I thought, okay, I can do that, right? You know, and then he passed me on to the guy, his name is Mehdi Faridzadeh, who is the executive director, was the executive director of this organization. It doesn't exist anymore. And he told me that they wanted translation. And, and I said no, or initially I said no, because I'm not, I speak and I understand some Persian, but I am not literate in the language at all, mm. right? And I knew nothing about, I mean, I knew, I, I knew the name Rumi because of, you know, Rumi is sort of the, right? Sure. Uh, the, 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 the one poet from that time that, whose name people know, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and so I, initially I said no for that reason. I mean, there are people, I know that there are people who are bilingual poets and translators who could do this work. And what he told me at the time was that most of the people who were bilingual poets, they were much, they were not interested in doing classical work. They were dealing with contemporary Mm. poets. Mm -hmm. And the one or two people who could have done it were academics. They just never got back to him about the project. Um, And so, you know, and I mean, it is, it is a fact that, Poets have been using what are called trots to translate for a long time, right? You What's get someone, that? a trot, it's called a trot or a pony. You get someone to provide you with a, a, a you know, an accurate rendering into the, the target language, in this case, English. And then the poet takes that and makes a poem, right? Oh, turns it okay. into, right? Turns it into a poem. Um, and, and I mean, that's something that poets have been doing for you know, for ages, right? For a very, very long time. Mm. Um, and, and he said that that's, you know, what they wanted was a native English speaking poet to do this because they wanted the work, they wanted the work to sort of sing in English, right? To stand by yeah. itself as, you know, contemporary American English mm-hmm. poetry. Um, and they had, he told me, they had, you know, they would provide me with the trots. I would have resources. Was I, you know, you know, and he said, try some samples mm-hmm. and let's see how it goes. Yeah. And the reason, the reason I decided to do it was that, you know, my, my son is Iranian American. Mm-hmm. He speaks, he speaks, he's fluent in Persian, but he doesn't read or, you know, reads very, very little. And there's going to be event. There are, there's a generation of Iranian, you know, second generation or third generation immigrants like him. Yeah who, if these works are not, 
in accessible literary versions that they might actually enjoy reading, right? Mm-hmm. Um, will not have access to this part of their tradition, mm-hmm. except through really, really old or scholarly books that yeah. nobody's going to want to read. <laughs> Take the life out um, of this. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, I mean, that was, that was, that was I mean, I'm not going to say that, that the, the, they were going to hand me a five-book contract, mm-hmm. right, to do five books. That, of course, appealed to me mm-hmm. as a writer, as an academic, right? Yeah. But, you know, doing this, thinking about my son and people like him also was a really important. So I decided to do the samples. Yeah. Um, I did them. I sent them to Mehdi. He, you know, he liked them. The people that he had supporting him liked them. And that's how I came. That's how I came to do the translation. Mm-hmm. Um, the two books, the the two books by Sadi, who's a, a poet, who's a contemporary of Rumi, right? Um, are the, were the two big books that I did, the two larger books that I did, and I and I published a small, a translation of a small section of the Shahnameh, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, people tend to talk about it as the Iranian national epic, mm-hmm. right? It's, I mean, it's 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 a huge book called the Book of Kings. Oh, okay. Is the title is the title in English, and I'm actually I actually have a sabbatical in the fall to put out a second edition of the of one of the Sadi books. So it's called Bustan. And to put a second edition out, I have a, a sabbatical to work on that in the fall. Oh, lovely, Richard. We could I could listen to you answer and educate and and share some of your your wisdom for like the whole day but i want to be respectful of your time i want to ask you one more question and uh mm-hmm. of course i want to say thank you for for all of your insights today but um if you could pass on some little nuggets of wisdom to anyone who's starting out as a poet what would you say to them there's i mean there are a bunch of things i would say one is read 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 you know, and not just poetry, but read. The number of people I've met who love to write poetry but don't read anybody else, you know, because, but don't read. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, there's a difference between wanting to be a poet, which to me has to do with a way of seeing the world and a way of being in the world and wanting to write poetry. Um, you know, when Philip Booth said to me, you don't need a degree to be a poet, go live a little bit. In some ways, that's what he was telling me, right? In some ways, that's what he was telling me. Other questions I would ask. A question to keep asking yourself if that's what you want to do is, what are you committed to? Mm-hmm. What are you, in, in wanting to be a poet or start it, what is it that you're committed to mm-hmm. as, a, as a poet? As a writer, what are you committing yourself to? E. e. Cummings, I think it was, has a definition that, you know, a poet is someone who's in love with making things. And you can sort of tell by the people I'm quoting what, you know, where my, where the roots of my reading are, because I know that there are a lot of contemporary writer poets who are saying very similar things, but I just, you know, I'm going back to where I started, right? I remember when I was 20, I was 22 years old, and I remember sitting 21 years old, and I remember sitting in a cafe at Stony Brook University, writing in my journal, and I wrote, I wrote, it was either I am a poet or I want to be a poet. I I think I wrote, I am a poet. And those were the most, at the time, I was terrified to write it because 
it was a commitment I was making to myself, to a particular way of being in the world and a particular, you know, pursuit. And I was only at that time, I was thinking I was only accountable to myself for it, but it was a commitment I was making to myself. And that was really scary to come to that sort of definition. I do think it's, I'll say a little more practical. I, I'm, I know I'm sort of rambling, but I'll say a couple you ask. I think reading is one, finding, finding a peer group, find a group of, find a group of writers who are your peers that you can share work with, share frustrations with, and all of that, because the kind of encouragement and support and, you know, just, just joy of discovery that you will get from dealing with people who are going through the same things you are going through is very, very different from what you get from a teacher who's got more experience, you know, from a mentor or something like that. Um, so I think, and I, and, and find a mentor, whether, whether that's, whether that's, for me, a lot of, some of that happened in the books that I read. For me, some of, you know, a lot of that happened in the books that I read more than it was working with an individual person. Um, because after I left Syracuse, I went off into a field completely having nothing to do with literature and my, you know, my reading, my writing, my professional work was, was somewhere else. Um, but I do, it's also important to find, you know, a mentor, someone you trust who's going to be, and who's going to tell you the truth about your work. Lovely. Lovely. Um, I really want to thank you for your time, Richard. Uh, I'm oh. really grateful that you took some time out of your morning to share some of these, uh, amazing experiences and your, your insight and wisdom. And of course, for putting up with these, these silly questions, but, uh, it's, it's really been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Yeah. I really uh, wish you the best and I hope that we get to catch up sometime down the road, but, uh, thanks again for the work that you do. You're very welcome. I'm happy to come back. I have a book. I'll tell you, I have a book coming out in August in, in like August, September, 2023. I'm happy to come back if yeah. you would like to have me back. Come and say hi. I'll be around. I absolutely will. Okay, <laughs> cool. Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you have a wonderful day, and I'll talk to you real soon. You do the same. Thanks, Jamie. Hey, take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.